Welcome to Manager Tools. M Conference Learnings and Highlights. So Mark, we just got done last week with our first inaugural, first inaugural, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, uh, good one. Our inaugural <laughs> M Conference. I suspect you feel the same way. This was the most delightful and exciting experiences I've had at our 14 years of manager tools. I would say it is roughly equivalent to our very first two conferences in Washington, D.C. and San Antonio. I think the first conference, we had something like 105 people there because people wouldn't let us tell them no, and they, and it was a, a riot. I mean, it was just crazy. We had no idea Three hours of intros, into. right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I said in my note to licensees this week, things I think I think, that which went out this week, I said, we had two goals. First of all, obviously, if somebody's going to pay us $3,000 to come for two days, we have to deliver value on the core delivery, which is the audience, the, the presenters. Uh, and that's what we're going to talk about today. The presenters just absolutely slayed the room. I mean, we had... CEOs, EVPs, SVPs, uh, people that started their own business, entrepreneurs, highly successful people, only 50 of them in the room, and nobody left. I mean, yeah. maybe four or five people over the course of two days stepped out of the room to make one, make or take one phone call, yeah, was- which is just, it just doesn't happen anymore. And, and so the presenters were fantastic. The second thing which we were hoping to have occur is have our community talk to one another, to have John Hoffman meet Gene Hill or Dan McGuire meet John Baisden. Um, those sort of connections started to happen, so much so that we have a, a very robust uh, discussion going on privately in a social media channel so that we can continue the vibe from the event. Um, and interestingly enough, I, uh, Wendy was there, and she said it was great for her because people, you know, she doesn't travel the way I do uh, or Kate or Sarah do. And so people were coming up to her all the time saying, oh, I feel like I know you. Of course, she rolled her eyes because I tell people that all the time. People come up to me and say, I feel like I know you. Yeah, I don't know you. I'm glad I'm helping you. I love helping you. I'm glad, but I literally don't know who you are. And and she was she was in tears at the end of every day from people coming up and saying thank you and uh, really felt like. There was a specialness to this first group, um, which is why we're going to repeat it again next year. We're working on dates and location and should have that within a week or two, I would say. All things being equal, which in the hotel business, sometimes sketchy. Yeah, but that's our intent. Yeah. So anyway, so today we're going to talk about some of the learnings and highlights, which I think is useful for those of you who haven't, you haven't been there. This is going to be very different than our normal podcast, but yeah, I think... For each of the points we're going to talk today, I think there are some things you could do. You may some of these oh, things yeah, may yeah. resonate with you, and you're like, "Oh, well, I didn't know about that. Maybe I need to research it." This is not just an ad for the M Conference at all. Um, you know, we try to keep ads for our products to a minimum. People have said before, "Thank you for getting rid of external product ads." I think we have two ads per thing. There will be no ads in this thing. But I went through my scribbled down notes and I have captured some things that struck me. Now, it may not strike every, everyone every, the same way, but things that I was listening to that I heard from presenters or questions of me during our, 
open form at the end that I thought might be useful and I thought were actionable. We're not going to say in this cast, here's what to do, but I think there's a healthy percentage of folks out there that will hear what we what we ended up talking about at the conference and turn that into some behavior change on their parts. And we will be following up with some of these. One of them, John Basden's point, we're definitely going to turn into a podcast. I've checked with John and he said it'd be okay for our entire Manager Tools audience. Okay, so here we go. Uh, I could feel the room change when Gene Hill, who happens to be a friend of mine, a very, very successful investor, um, said, uh, you know, you've got to know your DCF and your Kager. And you could just see the looks on people's faces. I was standing in the back of the room that they, you know, maybe some of them knew DCF, but they didn't quite catch that Kager thing he was saying. Yeah, I thought we were going to have a party. Well, yeah, it was like like men in black, intergalactic Kager. Um, so if you don't know, DCF stands for discounted cash flow, and CAGR is CAGR, which is compound annual growth rate. Now look, um, these are things that if you are at a fiduciary level in an organization, which generally in the old days was what being an executive meant, that you had responsibility for the organization, and these things were important to you as measures of the health of the firm and so on. Uh, This is particularly true for investing in new companies that may not yet have a revenue stream, but that are planning on it. But look, if you're promoted from the ranks, if you're a manager and you didn't study investing, you're not into Scott trade or TD Ameritrade or Schwab or whatever, you know, maybe you put all your funds into a, you know, an index fund, a spider or something like that. If you're not into corporate valuations, and to be honest, folks, that's not something that that wows me. I don't think about why, which company is worth more than another company, because those things change. Or if you've never had an MBA, which, by the way, is not the kiss of death. It really isn't. There's a lot of things they teach in MBAs that are helpful, um, but you, you can clearly run a very big, successful company without one. If you haven't done any of those things, there are going to be some executive level skills that are new to us when we get that. And you're not going to not get promoted because you don't know what DCF is in a meeting. It might make you look bad, but if you deliver great results and you retain your people and you're a senior manager or a director, and you think you're at a level where you might get a a, a big nod to vice president or whatever that junior executive level is called in your organization, um, if you are able to promote people that work for you and they do well in the next role, you're going to get a chance at a promotion. You don't need to say things like discounted cash flow in meetings all the time to be impressive to your bosses. Basically, organizations want results. But as you get higher, the tools, the metrics, the instrumentation, the choices you make are different. And uh, typically, as companies grow, they think about growth slowing. When growth slows, one of the ways larger companies grow is by acquisition. You know, I think I made a quote, made a comment a few years ago in the podcast, but it may have been in things I think I think for licensees, which said, in order for Walmart, the biggest uh, corporation in the world, to grow, I think, 3%, they have to add another Fortune 50 company to their top line revenue. 
I mean, that that's hard. It just gets harder and harder. More As you get bigger, if you don't know this, folks, more and more of the energy of the organization is expended on internal things. Every percentage of energy you spend on internal things is not spent on external things. And all results for all organizations are external to the organization. All the costs are internal. All the results are external, which is one of the reasons why Tom Peters years ago is in search of excellence said, you know, too many executives spend too much time at less than successful companies focusing on internal things. And you've got to get outside of your box. You got to go talk to customers. You got to go talk to vendors and suppliers and learn what your competitors are doing and how your customers feel and so on. Uh, so DCF and CAGR, C-A-G-R, compound annual growth rate, are two of these standard valuation slash investment decision factors that matter. And just, just so you understand at a high level, discounted cash flow basically says this. I'm thinking about investing in company A. Company A has a document which says, we believe that based on the number of prospects and potential customers and customers and how much we're going to charge for our products and so on, that we will be able to make this much money in cash flow, meaning all our revenues minus our costs and so on, we're going to create this much cash in year two, year three, year four, year five. Discounted cash flow tells us that a dollar today is worth more than a dollar in the future because a dollar in the future will be able to buy less because of inflation. So the idea is we're going to count the future cash flows of the company and then we're going to discount it for whatever rate of return, whatever inflation, however, whatever the math is there. And you can find all sorts of DCF formulas on the web and for Excel and so on. And then that will tell you, based on those future cash flows, what might be a representation of the valuation of the company today. Now, if those discounted cash flows are worth $100 million today, because they'll be $115 million in a few years, then if you're choosing to invest $80 million in the company today, that would suggest that your $80 million could be worth $100 million today. It isn't. It's only worth the 80. But the future rate of inflow of cash in today's dollars would suggest that you are already making a good bet. That's discounted cash flow. And if you're thinking about buying a company and all you're looking at is the product and how good you think it is, or all you're looking at is the management team, which by the way, every single person who talked about investing and valuing companies and thinking about the future all said the most important thing is management teams. But it's not the only thing you look at. You have to make a financial decision. And if you're only looking at those things and you're not doing your financial calculations because you don't know that you can actually estimate the potential value based on discounting future cash flows that the company you're thinking about buying says they can bring in, then you're not doing a full, complete analysis. Compound annual growth rate is something a little different. Basically, compound annual growth rate says this. And Mike, I encourage you, if I say this wrong, correct me and we'll get it right. Um, if I invest some money in a company and the company says, we, we are going to make this much this year and this much next year. Uh, or, or if you're looking forward and you're uncertain about how much they're going to make year one, year two, year three, maybe they make 20% the first year. 
uh, in terms of growth. But in the next year, for all kinds of reasons, tariffs or taxes or who, who knows, competition, they only make 9%. And in the third year, because they make some adjustments, they make 13%. The question becomes, what should you value that company at in terms of its growth rate? If you want a growth rate of 10%, but the math for that suggests they only make 9%, then maybe they don't make your cutoff for an investment. Compound annual growth rate says, it's a simple formula that says, which we're not going to go into now, type in CAGR Excel into your browser and you'll discover 5 million already done. If I'm pretty sure it's already in Excel that will say, just give us the numbers and we'll tell you what the compound annual growth rate is. It says, if you were 20 and 9 and 31 or 30 and 50 and 80, CAGR smooths those numbers out and says, your annual growth rate compounded year to year is X. And that X gives you a comparison to whatever your hurdle rate is to decide whether or not that investment will be worthy to you. Um, because typically, if you're investing other people's money, it's not enough to make money. You have to make money over a hurdle rate, whatever you, whatever promised rate of return you want. Yeah, I think I think discounted cash flows and and compound annual growth rate are different ways of comparing alternative investments, right? We have, we have opportunity cost, right? Yeah. And being able to compare them. And unfortunately for discount cash flow and Kegger, right? The, one of the, one of the challenges with evaluating opportunities is that the flow of the cash that comes occurs over time. And you could have different opportunities with different amounts that occur at different time periods and you got to compare them in some way. So this is a way of, I think, broadly speaking, a way of comparing different alternatives and discounted cash flows really brings it back to today's dollars. And and Kegger is really, what is the annual return? And yeah. a common number that you can compare multiple investment opportunities with. Yes. And uh, this is a reminder yet again that, as I've said to you before, Mike, in our spare time, we ought to have what amounts to an MBA program set of podcasts that we can make available to licensees or that we could potentially sell that says, hey, rather than saying, over the next 15 years, guys, we'll put out all the casts that we'll make up for an MBA, we may choose to record them all within a week or two and then say, we're going to release these in the normal feed. I don't know this. I'm talking, just letting things flow, but who knows? We could record all the casts and say, if you want them all now, you can pay us, or you can wait and we'll get all these casts out with all the other thousands of casts we have to deliver over the next few years. Um, but these are the classic kind of tools that an MBA would learn. And frankly, some undergrads would learn as well. Yeah. Let's move on. That took a long time. Um, uh, next, I'll just mention uh, a different speaker, John Hoffman, who's the CEO of Pivotal Systems in Silicon Valley shared his morning meeting. Okay. Now, this is a CEO of a publicly traded company. He and all of his direct reports meet at 8:30 a.m. Pacific by phone if necessary every workday. They go over all of the key activities that matter to the company. I've seen the spreadsheet they use. It may have 50 to 100 rows on it. Every single manufacturing order is reviewed. 
Is it on track? Is it late? Is it we're waiting on a part? What's the story? Uh, What's the status? Is it red? Is it amber? Is it green? Every single possible sale to every single customer. In other words, every single salesperson's pipeline document is reviewed every morning. What's the status of a particular sales effort? What's the likelihood of it? You You can say, well, I've got 31 deals I'm pursuing here. This one's I really feel good about it. I'm going to give it an 80% chance. This one, flip a coin, 50%. This other one, it's a long shot. They've never gone with this before. I'll give it 5%. And you multiply all those numbers together and figure out if your percentages are correct, when will the revenue occur? Um, Quality issues. Review the production line stats for the previous day. Did we meet our our, uh, acceptable level of quality? And for that matter, throughput. Expected remedies on the production line, dates for that remedy, and costs associated with that remedy. This is the executive team of a publicly traded company worth over $100 million, and they do this every day. I think I actually tweeted this the other day, and I said, this is managing. It's not micromanaging. This is managing. And uh, John and I had a conversation about it. And he said, I said, you know, I, I think a lot of people come into work in organizations today and they, they've been told that they're individuals, which they are, and they're told they have freedoms and rights and so on, liberties, and that, that's all true. But they haven't been told that when you join an organization, you give up part of that in return for the magnification effects of the organization. Um, I've talked about that an awful lot. And uh, he says, I have this conversation with young engineers all the time. They say, well, you can't, you can't compromise on this circuit that I've come up with. He said, sure, I can. I can compromise anything because the theory of suboptimization, which plays out all the time in organizations all over the world, is fairly straightforward. If you want an optimal product, the way that works is you suboptimize every subpart. That's the theory. That's basically fact proven over and over again. It's axiomatic. Same thing with organizations. If you want to optimize the results for the organization, you have to suboptimize every single division's results. And therefore, that inevitably leads to every single person is suboptimized. So the electrical engineer doesn't get exactly what he wants at all. Because if everybody got exactly what they want, either the product would be too expensive or it wouldn't work. So everybody compromises, everybody's input is suboptimized in return for the output being optimized because the definition of optimized output is not what we say it is, but what customers say that it is. So I just love that. Just let's, yeah. let's go down in the weeds. How are we doing? Where are we? I remember talking to a Hollywood executive once and he said he knew that he would be a good Hollywood executive one day. I grew up with this guy in LA. He was working uh, uh, on a movie set and the film that he was working on was way behind. And the person in charge was a total creative genius and everybody loved working for him, but they were way behind. And he saw that film being canceled. And another film where there was no drama, there there was some tension, there was some conflict, but the guy in charge every morning for an hour before they started filming, they went over the previous day, decided what needed to be done. They had updates on when they were going to be done. And they talked with uh, the, the people on the, at the studio on the finance side about how things were changing day to day. 
And he said, you know, he would say routinely to the to the actors and the the set people and all the hangers on, you wouldn't believe how many people are standing around when movies are made. But um, he said, if we can't save money now, we won't make money later. And for a lot of these people, that was just like, what? We're worried about money? <laughs> well, somebody was. We talked um, a bit about kind of future technology and stuff at the M conference and the particular topic doesn't matter, but John and I were talking in the back and, you know, Pivotal Systems, his company has great technology, right? But he's, he says it's not, it's not only about great technology and the companies can talk about what's coming in the future. But the question is, can they execute, right? It's yeah. execution, right? And their morning meetings is all about execution. Yeah, good. Okay, next thing, which I really, really struck me. This again came from Gene Hill, um, our, our investment genius. Is the company you're looking at a price taker or a price maker? And again, that was a, a statement that I, when I looked at the audience, it was clear that people were furiously writing that down, that people didn't know what it meant. And it's about analyzing investment opportunities. Is your product that you're touting new and different enough such that you will be able to set the price yourself because customers don't have any way to compare it. And so that would make you a price maker. Or are you going into competitive waters with only a marginally better product for which there are comparisons, in which cases prices are already set and you are somewhat of a price taker? There's a difference. If you're a price maker, maybe you can push the price a little bit such that suddenly the investment looks good or the company looks good as opposed to being a price taker, which now you better have a very firm control on your costs. The next thing that I, um, I just put these in random order based on my scribbled notes on five or six sheets of paper because I couldn't stand in the back of the room and hold a notebook because I was often carrying a microphone to people who were asking questions. But uh, our good friend Dan McGuire spoke about leading in a hot LZ. What do you do when you're asked to go fix something that's broken? And his question, one of his questions, one of the key things he reminded people of is, are you visible? Are you in your office thinking and working and sending emails? Or are you talking to people and monitoring their facial expressions and therefore drawing conclusions about their emotional state? Are you in meetings? Are you creating relationships that or connections that you can later leverage by asking for more information, more, more uh, questions, uh, more exchange, and so on. As Dan said, you want to practice letting your chair get cold. And I'm sure this is not politically correct, but in case you think this is something new about being visible, General Patton, who's definitely not politically correct, said about all of his generals, I don't trust any of those waffle tails. And I'm going to let you all figure out what that means. <laughs> you should have a contest. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next. Again, this is from Gene Hill. I was, and, and I was really struck by the number of times that when it came to investing, when it came to valuing companies, when it th came to the potential opportunity for growth that virtually all large organizations think about acquisitions and valuation, therefore, by definition, we don't want to pay too much. How often people were scribbling furiously. And Gene said something really, really powerful. He says, 
have we matched the managerial attributes of our new organization to the needs of the stage that that organization is in? In other words, if you're just starting and you just need something to get product, maybe you need a scientist. If, in fact, you're getting ready to go public, maybe you need a persuader or a salesperson. Uh, maybe you need a process guy to build out the manufactory that you're going to use to produce your product. Regardless, it may be that you have the one person who's so good she can do all of it, but it may also be that you're going to have two or three different people in key roles at key times over the course of the launch of a company, if we're talking about innovative technology. And make sure that you're hiring somebody who's done what you want them to do in this next stage before, and they've proved they can do it well. Another uh, thing that jumped out at me regarding evaluating talent, um, mistakes are okay, which I was really pleased to hear because I've been, you know, I was in violent agreement with that. That's good because my day has been nothing but mistakes. So yeah, no. <laughs> glad you have that attitude. Uh, yeah. But the question really is, has the person having made mistakes? Because by the way, if somebody says they haven't made mistakes, they're lying. And that's a different problem. That's a credibility problem. But if, they ha if they've made mistakes, have they recovered from them? And have they learned from them? Okay. So there's nothing wrong with asking the question of, give me an example of a mistake you've made, how you recovered, if you did on that one or on a future one, and what lessons did you learn? That's completely appropriate. You know, more mistakes are inevitable. So you have to ask and you have to listen well. But going back to John Hoffman, John brought up, what's our share price and how will we move it? I mean, again, John just took his company public, his investors, the board represents the investors and the board are some of the key investors. So that's what his board wants to know. And he reports to them. I always think it's funny when people say, I want to be CEO. I don't want to have a boss. Dude, the moment you become CEO, you go from one boss to 14, and they're all smarter than you. And they've all done the job before. <laughs> right. And they all have a bigger ego than you because they've already done the job. They don't need to keep the job. They're on the board. They come and go as they please. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. So, uh, and, and, and by the way, John went on to say, and they want to know what your plan is the day you take over. Now, that doesn't mean you need to have the perfect plan when you're an SVP, but you should be informed generally about what you might do and how you might do it. Okay, here's probably one of my favorite presentations. I mentioned John Bayston. Um, John asked a question of his organization internally in his own head and then went out and attempted to find out about it. And before I give you the example, I want you to listen to this both as a tactical issue, what John did and what he shared with us. And I can't go into all of it because he talked for an hour. But more importantly, the value in learning for uh, the manager tools community, that this is not, what John did is not an approved solution. It wasn't led by HR. It wasn't top-down. This is a manager, of course, in John's case, an executive saying, what do I need to do? And can I be sure that I'm doing the very best I can when it comes to key things I do, one of which for an executive leader is hiring? And he realized he didn't have good data on either how people were interviewing, which is something that needed to be fixed, but also whether or not the people we said yes and or no to later turned out to be good or bad hires. And my point was, this is somebody trying something. There's no playbook for it. 
He didn't read a book about this. His CEO didn't tell him to do this. HR isn't telling him and every other group vice president, you have to do this. He's just saying, I need to figure out a way to figure out if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing and if there's a way to do it better. And and by the way, he didn't hire a consultant to do this. Uh, Certainly, he's very familiar with our stuff. He's been listening to our guidance. He has the effective hiring manager. He knows those basic principles and and follows them quite well. And I think all of his managers, or most of them anyway, uh, have been trained on our basic principles. But he asked the question, do we know whether our hires turned out well a year later? And so how do you find out? Well, you have to ask people. John and his team asked a simple question. Would you hire this person again? And the beauty of this is the answers were limited to yes or no. It was done in a sort of a managerial forum situation. And the reason why it was limited to a yes or no is because that's what the decision was at time of hire. Not, well, it was complex and there are multiple factors. No, you have to boil it down to yes or no, because that's how we're going to learn how better to say yes or no in the future. So we're going to definitely turn that into a podcast and explain what John did, because there are times when things people are trying are useful. And I'd like to think that you know the community would be able to put ideas together in such a way that um, we can make it available to everyone and we can learn from what's happening in the field. Yeah. That single question, yes or no, is just brilliant, right? Yeah, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Uh, Next, can you adhere to the plan you said you were going to adhere to? I can't remember who said it. Uh, I think maybe John, but, but executives are expected to have learned how to deal with multiple competing priorities and how to fight to stay on, focused on key tasks. The higher you go... I've said this before, folks, the worse it is, uh, your workload triples the moment they make you an executive. And then they take away a third of your schedule because you're going to meetings constantly in order to, in part to maintain the relationships you need to maintain because at the top of the organization, you can't get anything done by yourself. So it's even harder to focus. The whole planning is everything and plans are nothing. But the question really becomes, can you deliver? And part of the reasons why you often see executives saying no to a lot of things. They're fearful that if they flip into the channel of say yes to everything, the one thing, there'll be 500 yeses, and there is only one yes that will matter to the organization at the end of the year. I tell people all the time, pick one. Well, there are three or four things. Dude, if you don't pick one, there isn't one. And if you're not saying which one of those four is your number one, don't be surprised no offense, you said they're, you're basically not willing to pick one. That's fine. That's your choice. But if you discover that the one you didn't give extra effort to is the one that your boss or the organization needed, don't come crying to me about the fact that you lose your job. Simple. So you have a plan? Can you stick to the plan? And sometimes it's fingernails and teeth. But that's what you're expected to do. Next, this this surprised me. Uh, Mark Granger, who's the global head of HR at a huge New York law firm and a longtime friend of the firm's, came in and said, the struggle is real about personal organization. And Mark basically walked through in detail with his rationale for what I'll call his personal productivity workflows. 
it sounds corny, but how does he deal with his one-on-one notes? Actually, his one-on-one notes are loosely bound. They're not even in a notebook, and they're in a a plastic folder. They're, they're, they're unconnected to each other, which I thought was interesting. And I can't say is wrong if, in fact, it's useful to him. Yeah, for some people, it was like, just blew their mind. They're like, what? You can't, you can't yeah, do that. Yeah, you can't, you, you, <laughs> you can't, do, you that. can't do that. It reminded me of the guy who said, yeah, uh, yeah, I do all my one-on-ones on Thursday. And I said, well, why do you do your one-on-ones on Thursday? Oh, because that's what you told us in a podcast. I said, no, no I really didn't. I know. <laughs> Pretty sure I didn't, didn't say that. Um, I do think that was a bit of a language barrier on my, yeah. fault, my part there. But anyway, look. You can't be unorganized if you're responsible for hundreds or thousands of people's livelihoods. You can't, folks. It's not cute. It's not creative. Oh, my desk is a mess, but I know where everything is. Folks, you're embarrassing yourself when you say that. You can't just say you're a creative person. Too much admin and too much paperwork means, in every executive role, means you have to have a way to deal with it. Sure, an admin helps, a person who's your administrative assistant, but it's not enough. We, we ended up talking a good bit about uh, getting things done, about Outlook, paper versus digital. I made the point that I was surprised. A bunch of people wrote this down, which I was very surprised about. I said, I love my iPad, and we had people from Apple there, and I was bowing to them. I, I think my iPad is one of my favorite products of all time ever, and yet... I don't take a lot of notes on it. And the reason why is if I have five different notes in my iPad and I want to look at them all simultaneously on my desk, I can't. Whereas if I carry around paper, I can have three or four things open on my desk referring between them. I'm not saying that's the right solution, but let me tell you, my system really works for me and yours should for you. And for many people, we develop our own little habit and rut, and and then we aren't able to see how other people are doing it. And so part of Mark's talk was about fomenting a discussion about sharing how people, various people do it, so that people could cherry pick other ideas that were better than the ones they had existing. So we need to figure out how to make that come to fruition here in the, for the Manager Tools community, and we will. Uh, next, um, we have to categorize customers. Uh, salespeople have a bad habit of doing this, folks. If you don't know, if you haven't worked with customers, oh, they're a customer, they're a customer, they're a customer. Well, actually, no. A customer who's somebody who has already paid you for a product you've already delivered. That's a customer. There are prospects, people who say they want to talk to you. There are leads. And then there are also suspects, people who is starting a new company, say, here are all the possible customers of this company. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. Divide that by 100 and you're probably close. Yeah. And, and if you're looking at investments you and you're talking to the people that you are thinking about acquiring, you might want to make clear what the difference between prospects and suspects, right? I think that's the exactly. point. Exactly. Because they're going to they're gonna sell you suspects as prospects. And yeah, not. exactly. Yeah. So related to can we adhere to our plan, can we deliver – can we articulate our business plan? Having a great plan is different than actually delivering on it. But even before you get to deliver on it, you have to be able to tell others what it is. And it's not enough to tell other people what it is. You have to persuade them of its value. The idea isn't enough. The plan in it isn't enough. Others, people believing in your plan is the start of you getting to deliver it. And so you being a genius 
who can't communicate your plan is worth zero. I know that sounds terrible, but maybe that means you have to partner with somebody who can talk to others, but you have to be able to articulate your business plan such that somebody will be persuaded to invest. And by invest, I mean literally give you money to buy the product. That's a form of an early investment in a company. Um, just a couple of more, and then I want to mention some books, and I, I know we're going on too long here. Um, can we find time for solitude to think? And this was an eye-opener, right, from Dan Garve's presentation. Can we turn off Twitter, which isn't thinking, it's only reacting and feeling? Can we turn off social media, which is even worse? Uh, the fear of missing out, FOMO, guys, is a false god. Um, can we read enough, deeply enough, to aggregate ideas and to have insights that come from the connection and friction of multiple ideas in one head's, one's head at the same time? As F. Scott Fitzgerald said, the, the, the true sign of genius would be able to hold two competing, two totally opposite ideas in your head at the same time. Okay. Um, can we develop insights that are valuable for the organization? Even when you're in a hot LZ, when the stuff is flying around you fast and furious, and no one around you expects you to do anything other than come in there and be a whirlwind of activity, can you find time for solitude to think through what's happened during the day and make comparisons about what's important and what's just drama, what's information and what's noise, what's signal and what's noise? Last point before we share some books that were batted around by several people. Uh, we come back to it. Is your HR business partner, generalist, whomever, are they a trusted ally of yours? This is from Lauren Dreyer. Our HR partners in most cases have more than one manager to serve. It's got to be on us as managers and executives to forge a relationship with HR. And without a relationship, you end up making them a really poor firefighter for you when you call on them and say, I need some help. And, and if they're a poor firefighter for us, that's on us. Uh, in the one-to-many relationship, the many have to work harder in order to make the relationship strong. Uh, and believe me, what do CEOs spend more of their time doing than anything else? People. Who's the person they're going to be spending time with? Yes, all of the operating heads and so on, and their chief people officer or whatever fun title it goes by today. Okay, I feel like we're running out of time here, Mike, so I'll just be brief. Some books to read. Uh, Crossing the Chasm and Inside the Tornado, classic technology innovation company books. Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande. Well, I read it three or four years ago. Absolutely monumentally great. I will tell you that when I think about, when people tell me they're a creative person, I kind of chuckle and I'm reminded of Walt Disney saying that even creative people need deadlines. And actually, all the data are showing that creative people actually do better with structure and programmers and developers and creative people and everybody else, we need more checklists so that we don't have to think about things that aren't worth thinking about to free up more of our brain cells to think about the things that really matter in terms of leverage. Uh, a book called Boyd, uh, the fighter pilot who I think changed warfare. And in it, uh, Dan McGuire shared us uh, the, the concept of OODA, O-O-D-A, um, orient, observe, decide, act. It's a, it's a decision planning cycle. 
Leadership and self-deception was mentioned by several people. Crucial conversations, uh, a stalwart of people's book lists. Uncommon service. And also Marcus Buckingham's new book, Nine Lies About Work, which Gerhard Gross said, don't worry, Mark, except for the chapter about feedback, it's actually pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) And I could go on. We could keep talking, but I mean, we've been, I've been going on plenty enough already. Some of these we will recur to in more detail because there are details that we can share that will make you more useful. But these are the kind of things that managers on the cusp of executive life or people who are executives are thinking about on a regular basis. And it gives you an opportunity to assess where are you? What do you need to do? What do you need to learn? How do you need to grow? So you can develop a personal plan for how you're going to get better. Because as the Rangers say, good, better, best, never let me rest until my good is better and my better best. There you go. A special shout out to a long, long, long term licensee, Paul Koch. Paul has been with us since November of 06, uh, continuously. We tip our hat to you, Paul. Um, thank you for staying with us as long as you have, and we hope to continue to give you great value for uh, your licensee money for years and years and years to come. Thanks. All right, my friend. Thanks, partner. We'll see you next week. You bet. So long, folks. Thank you.